All right, hey guys, and welcome to the Three Drinks In podcast, episode number 264. I'm your host, Vince. Over there is your host, Phil. Hey. There he is. In this episode, we are talking about Tomorrow Never Dies as part of our Shaken Not Stirred series. Before we get into all that, we want you to ask you to please subscribe to the podcast on any of the streaming services, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Amazon Music. Make sure that you leave us a five-star rating and even a review. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can email us at threedrinksinpodcast at gmail.com. And lastly, don't forget to check out our merchandise over at tpublic.com. Try and say that as fast as I can every day. You don't have to rush. I don't, no, but it's late and I'm tired, and this is my second beer. So you're not really three drinks in. No, I had three French 75s before this whole thing started, so I'm actually five drinks in, technically speaking. But who's counting? Mm-hmm. Me. I, I, I yeah. count all those. All those somebody, somebody should be. Yeah. <laughs> somebody should be. Anyway, so uh, before we get going, I do want to apologize to listeners because, like, I was telling Phil that when I had posted the episode before last uh, about Creed 3. So I, still can't, I still can't believe I'm saying Creed 3. Um, I didn't know that that, did, that didn't go out on time. So that was like a month late along with the Spider-Verse episode. So sorry about that. I felt like we've been gone now for even longer than we were, even though we were gone for long enough as it was. So Everybody complain. <laughs> nobody complained to me no no so. one complained I did not hear from anybody but if you if you want to complain you can do so on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook or any one of the many places you can do that on it's now so easy to complain yeah what's stopping you of, America that's all anybody ever does so well not to me <laughs> so alright so tomorrow never dies mm-hmm Ever. Which number? Which number is this one? Of the Bond movies? Uh, yeah. Oh God. Just gonna uh, look. Yeah, look that one up there, because I. I mean, twenty-five. Eighteenth. Eighteenth. Eighteenth Bond movie. Yeah. And um, I'm trying to think if I if I have any strong recollections. Like Goldeneye, I remember going to see in the theater very very vividly. Um. Pretty sure I had a girlfriend at that time, which was weird for me in high school to have a girlfriend. I was like, oh, let's go see this James Bond movie. And um, this would have been the runner-up like the runner up to that one. And I, I, have, I have no recollection of seeing it much then. Like It didn't make as much of an impression on me as the other one did. And we'll talk about that you know, in a bit. But do you have any, any recollection of seeing it like early on when it came out? Or... Yeah, because I was 12, so like I was at the impressionable age when you see these things and it like imprints on your brain. But um, it's it's not well loved, so like I remember it very well, but I'm not like, it's not the one I like go to when I want to watch a Bond movie. And by then I'd seen a bunch of them on the Superstation, so like I had a lot of the old ones in my head already. And I was yeah. like, yeah, this is this is okay. So like I remember the big thing about it is that it's not as good as Goldeneye. <laughs> like everybody just seemed very upset that it wasn't as good. Which no. is hard because Goldeneye is the best. So Yeah, it's it's sort of yeah, it it's funny. Like I think the two best James Bond movies are the two, you know entrances of two new actors to play the role which is you know Goldeneye and then Casino Royale which we'll get to at some point in the future um and I think that has a lot to do with it this like there's an excitement usually about like there being a a big hiatus between actors like like there wasn't in the 60s and 70s like there was like okay well this guy's out now he's back in and then it's you know, there's less of a lag, and so there was some excitement about, you know, the new actor, and you know, something about just the energy that's that like a new production, a new concept is you know is bringing to the whole thing. Because there, 
with Pierce Brosnan and with Daniel Craig, there was like, a, okay, we're not going to reimagine this per se, which they did with Craig, but with Brosnan, it wasn't like we're reinventing the character, but we're we're sort of changing a few things about this to freshen it up a bit and make it a bit more accessible to a modern audience. And, and that was exciting, and it sort of worked, and it gave them you know, places to go with the story that were interesting and that weren't quite so banal. This film feels very much like, you know, it could have been a um, a Roger Moore movie. It could have been a Sean Connery movie. Like, it, nothing was particularly special about this story, per se, that makes you go, yeah, no, this really belongs in the Brosnan era of of the movies like you know i'm i'm sure i'm sure this is true of the next one too but they went from kind of a unique story end of the cold war changing of the guard you know at mi6 thing with golden eye to this one which is just like yeah no it's another weird guy bent on some kind of a scheme to dominate the world for some reason and it doesn't quite work out for him, but Bond has a good time blowing up his stuff, and that's the end of it. Like, there's not a whole lot of depth to what's going on compared to like Daniel Craig's, you know, like his run where it was like a one giant story told over four movies that really leaned into the episodic nature of the of that idea, and you know, culminated in his death. Yeah. So. But yeah, like it's it's aggressively mediocre, but not necessarily bad. No, it, it still has the shine of being in the '90s, where like the effects are really good and the stunts are pretty good, and you know, music is uh, it's it's well put together, it's well made. Um, I I I still really remember that everyone thought it was really stupid, <laughs> and I didn't think that was fair. Because we, you know, we've seen them all, and some of them are outrageously stupid. <laughs> yeah, you know, but I always thought this one was fairly prescient because the villain in this movie, you know, now that there is no Cold War and we're not fighting the Russians every five seconds, you know, is a, a megalomaniacal businessman who owns a media empire, and he's manipulating data and the news so that he can line his pockets with money. And like in 1997, everyone was like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. He's starting a war between England and Japan so he can get television rights. China. For like China for the next hundred years in this country because he was denied television rights and blah, blah, blah. And I'm sitting here like, well, that's not any dumber than trying to manipulate women in a ski lodge and send them around the world so they can brainwash people like <laughs> whatever the hell the Lazenby thing was like that was just bizarre yeah no no this is and when you look at it so now I mean time. it's like Again, yeah. that's what people do <laughs> people do with it with their TikToks they manipulate what everyone is seeing so that people believe something different you know not to start wars or anything but maybe like <laughs> like the idea that the information can be manipulated for nefarious purposes is so commonplace. We just shrug like, of course, that porn is a deep fake. That's not really me. And you're sitting here like, oh, my God, wait, what? So at the time, everyone like really crapped on this because they're like, yeah, that's the dumbest plot I've ever heard. And I, but even when I was 12, I was like, well, I don't Bond villains are supposed to be a little wacky. Makes sense to me. I don't, I don't know. It's better than a giant space laser using diamonds, isn't it? I mean, oh, Christ, it wasn't like he had anything like that. No, I mean, this was the beginning of the cable news wars. This was like, you know, you had CNN and then Fox and then MSNBC. And I don't have a timeline for all these things compared to this film, but that's what this was. It was commenting on, you know, people running what was a relative was a relatively new idea which is a 24-hour news network and like you got to keep people engaged all of the time otherwise you're not going to make money how do you how do you keep them engaged you show them things exciting on the tv usually people killing other people because you can't show pornography if they could show pornography they would do that yeah but they i mean there can't. was 
you know the big one of the big scenes in the movie when you meet the villain is that like he's starting his television network that's owned by satellites and like it's a big deal that he has newspapers and television and radio like he has like a media empire where he can manipulate events which at the time was a scary thought like well if you know if you're watching the news i'll just switch over to the radio or a different channel but like this guy owns all of that stuff so what happens you know and it was like it, it was way ahead of its time in, yeah. in that regard you know so I I never thought it was fair to lump like the plot of the movie as stupid. I was like it's it's not any stupid. It's not stupid. No, it's just it's just extreme because it's a James Bond film. So. And Jonathan Price really plays into it. Like he's he 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 goes well above and beyond what was necessary to do this. I mean he's he's a brilliant actor, but he's literally <laughs> chewing the scenery in this film. God. God damn, is he having a good time? Well, you can just tell he's having a good time. They give him that stupid onesie outfit that he wears the whole movie. <laughs> you know? I don't, I don't get that. Like, it's that, it's a, it's basically, it's an Asian style of suit. It's that high-necked, you know, single-breasted suit. Like Doctor No wore the same goddamn outfit, but in gray. Yeah. Did like you know who was spouting off one-liners and stuff? I was like, yeah, oh my god, he's so having a good time. Cheesy. Did you know who was first cast as that character? No. Anthony Hopkins. Oh, what happened to him? He didn't like the way the film was made. Apparently it was very chaotic with the fact that it, like the script was being written quite a bit. It was it the story does belie a certain amount of chaos. Like there's not a lot of it's not a tight ship they were running to make this movie. Um mm. which is ironic considering that he, he you know he he plays the uh like the like uh, Tom Cruise's boss for a hot minute in uh, the second, um, uh, what's it called? M- Mission Impossible movie where he like had eight minutes of screen time. He got paid a million dollars. Yeah, I remember that. that was, I remember him disappearing. I'm like, is, is that all he's going to do? Yep, walked on in the beginning, walked on in the end. That was the end of his role in the movie. One million dollars. It would have been a very different movie if it was Anthony Hopkins. I agree, and I like Anthony Hopkins. I actually think Jonathan Price was the better choice here. I think I can't, I can't buy Anthony Hopkins as being this over the top. Like he would have, he would have been too subtle. He would have been, he would have been scary in a in an exciting right. way. I think he would have, I think he would have been scary. Yeah, like Jonathan Price is never like never frightened of the guy. I don't know. There, in some of his casual brutality, he he's not scary in the, like the terrifying way, like Signs of the Lambs kind of way. But there are times where I'm like, "Wow, he's really okay with you just torturing the, you know, like when he pulls your heart out of your chest, you'll have just enough time to watch it stop beating." All right. You're still like a businessman, right? Like you're, saying, like you know, you, you're not, you're not a like it. It's just one of those things where, like, I, I think people are wrong when they say that the movie was bad and ridiculous, and you know, like, okay, fine, but it it is over the top in a lot of ways because this is like. Imagine Ted Turner having a guy tortured to death in his office and having his heart removed in the middle of the room. That seems unusual to me. And that's who he was portraying was a combination of like Roger Ailes and Ted Turner. And like you're you're supposed to... At one point, Bond literally calls him crazy or insane or something. And like you're supposed to agree with Bond, you know? Like he, he isn't well in the head. But that's what makes him scary is that he's sort of like unpredictable. Like he's so full of himself and he so believes that he's right that you're like, man, this guy, this guy's a lunatic. And he murders his wife in the middle of the movie. Yeah. <laughs> like, like his ruthless pursuit of, of knowledge and power is supposed to be what's frightening, you know? And he, he does a good job with that because you're like, well, he's also crazy. So, yeah. So, sure. Yeah. So, I, I, I always like that part of the movie. I like that. Uh, Jonathan Price was in it, hamming it up. You know, oh, God. it's wacky plot, but but still believable. So, like it, it takes something that was a concern, and it just 
dials it past 10 to 11 where the bond like our father always used to say like well the bond villains are all nuts and like what he really meant was that they take every ordinary villainy and turn it into cartoonish super villainy you know the stealth boat the giant drill oh, <laughs> you know, like, like so, it's not a normal that's why you need james bond to, to fix it james bond is not your normal spy yeah but uh, it's funny like i'm thinking of the drill like oh, i'm looking at like all my notes over here i just like i was sitting there like i just wrote shit down um <laughs> a terrorist arms bazaar on the russian border something about like that like setting title card was kind of funny like any old terrorist arms bazaar on the russian border it didn't say like I don't know. Something about it tells me that, like, now that would have been done a bit more deftly. But it was like, okay, this is where you are. It was. It was if they took the script and went, okay, what if we just take this, you know, exterior, you know, line and go, let's just make that a title card in the film. <laughs> it's gonna plaster it right there. Okay, good enough. It's easier than trying to explain where they are. I guess. I mean it. It's just so on the nose, and like it's not bad per se, it, but it stands out to me as like now you would just have like you would give the coordinates or you would give the name of the town it was nearby in Siberia, and somebody would have to say, "Look, it's a terrorist arms bazaar on the Russian border." Like it, like it, it wouldn't be printed like that. Just a yeah difference in how they do things today. Also, what is Ricky Jay doing in this movie? <laughs> it's my I'm second saying, note. It literally should we says, just go through the let's just go through the villains? Like, all right, so Jonathan Price, fantastic. Jonathan Price. Ricky J. Ricky J. Now for those Lost of you on the set <laughs> for those of you who don't know, Ricky J is a probably the greatest sleight of hand magician who ever lived. Unquestionably, in my opinion, which is not doesn't come from much, the greatest light of Hamilton that ever lived. He he did a uh, a performance years ago called Ricky Jay and his Fifty Two Assistants, and it's basically him. It was directed by David Mamet, for Christ's sakes. It was just him in a room with with an audience and doing a show where he did all these tricks. It's all like sleight of hand, close magic type stuff, and. I remember watching it going, oh, this is pretty good. It's really interesting. I didn't see that trick coming. And then he does this final trick. He does the cups and balls trick. And I urge everyone that when you're done with this podcast, go onto YouTube. There's a not-so-great version of this on YouTube where he does the cups and balls trick, and it blew me away. Like, I feel like I'm following a thing. I know what's going on. And then he does this thing. I'm like, holy shit, how did he do that? Like, we kind of have an idea as viewers now of things on YouTube to go, oh, it's a magic trick. I can probably figure out, like, you know, like, I'll see where I'm losing the plot. Like, you can kind of follow along. You go, okay, well, the trick must be here. And that's the thing I don't know. And that's amazing. It's impressive. But but really, do, do I watch a thing on, on the Internet and go, holy crap, how did that happen? Like, you just have no idea. He doesn't do any of that in this movie. <laughs> He's I didn't know nothing he was about that. Until the guy, I didn't know he was a magician, a magician until he died. Yeah. <laughs> like, hey, the guy from Bond died. He was a magician. What? Yeah, like an insanely famous one. Like he, apparently there was a thing about how he could throw a playing card with such force that he could embed it into a watermelon. Yeah, and I saw that. Yeah, they wanted to have him um, do that in the movie. He's like, no. That would be wildly unsafe. I can't do that. I would literally cut the man's eyes out of his head. So let's not do that. I mean, he did a bunch of David Ma- David Mamet films as well, and he's I I kind of like him as an actor because he's not an actor. Like I like taking non actors and giving them these kind of parts because they're quirky and their line delivery is weird and stilted. Well, that's the thing. He's not an actor. Yeah. So he like really stands out. It, this is not good casting for him here. No, <laughs> no, he's not. Like he's, you know, he's he's very well cast in the in the movie Heist, which was a David 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 Mamet film with like uh, Sam Rockwell and and Gene Hackman, where he's just got to be like the weird, 
kind of like third sidekick guy to your main, you know, character. And he's awkward and Mamet's dialogue is all awkward. So like you can't screw it up in that regard. Just read the goddamn thing and it's fine. But here he's like, what is he? What is he doing here? He's supposed to be some kind of a weirdo. Like he's like a techno terrorist, they call him. Well, that, that's the other thing. They call him some sort of a like a, a techno terrorist where he's like, he's a computer guy, which computers were still not widely used or understood. But you never see him do anything. No. He just has the little box that they need that like messes with the GPS coordinates on a ship. This is back when only ships had GPS coordinates. It was like a big deal. Now, now my milk carton has one. So like he has the box. So they just needed a body to be like, he's the guy carrying the box around. But like you don't see him even type on a computer keyboard or anything. Like he doesn't do anything. Yeah, well, like, if you dial yeah, down the ambient noise, like that's his whole thing with the computer is that one scene where he kind of like shows Carver like Paris talking to Bond for a hot second. Yeah, couldn't anybody do that? Yeah, yeah literally any. I could have done that. It would have been fine. I was 16 yeah, so, when it came out. Well, that was a very odd thing. Yeah. And then they had the henchman, oh, Mr. Stamper. Mr. Stamper, uh, who mm. I think was great because he was so quintessential. Just a, like, Just a big guy. Just a giant, teutonic monster of a guy. Give me the most Aryan man you can find. Yeah, now dye his hair blonde. <laughs> no blonder. No, that's too blonde. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. yeah. He, he was he was great. I I thought I mean like when you figure out that he's just a really big guy, you're like, oh he's just a really big guy. Okay. <laughs> the the problem with him is that, you know, all these henchmen always have some sort of a gimmick. And his gimmick is that he likes to torture people. But it's a PG-13 Bond film. So they can only talk about him torturing people. Yeah. Like, they don't actually get to see it. So, like, he's a big guy. And he's good at, like, making this, like, menacing-looking face. But beyond that, that's it. And and to be completely honest, he's not that big of a guy. He doesn't look like, you know, Schwarzenegger didn't Predator or anything. No. They were literally bulging out of their shirts. He he's still a big guy. Like he's bigger than Brazen by by a lot. But like, you know, he was proportionate and everything. Yeah, no. <laughs> he, wasn't... Didn't, he didn't look strange or anything like that. Like I was just watching the Green Mile for a minute there and uh, you know oh, Michael yeah, Clark Duncan playing, you know, John Coffey. That like, like both how that movie was shot and how big that guy is. He's like nine feet tall on that screen. Like it is, he's just so large, he just comes across as absolutely enormous. Yeah, and, yeah. And, he, he was a really big guy. But well, I mean, he was big, yeah. But at the same time, they also shot him in a certain way. Like, you know, so Michael Clark Duncan was like six foot five, six foot six. He was, you know, he was huge. But David Morse, who was in that film, was maybe six foot two. But they put they put David Morris at Michael Clark Duncan's shoulder. Like that's how big they made him look. It was all about camera angles and the way they would do tight shots and the fact that he like when he appears on screen for the first time, he's barefoot. Like that's that's deliberate to say that like not only is he enormous, but he's not wearing shoes. He's that tall barefoot. And so like if you want to make someone look enormous, it's not hard. You could do it. It just it takes time and careful planning and Frank Darabont could make that movie and do that whereas this guy whatever his name was who, who who directed this you know didn't have that kind of patience to make that kind of choice it was just like we need a big guy with blonde hair great you're good enough we'll go with that yeah basically and and that the guy who played him his name was uh, Goats Otto he was 6'6 he was a German guy yeah but he was also like he was thin, like he's, he had like a really thin neck, you know. Yeah, like he was like the veins bulge out more, but like he wasn't that intimidating. Like Dave Batista is huge and and like not that tall. He's not six six. Dave Batista, he's a big guy. Yeah, but I don't think he's six six. And you know, like you know, he was, but like he was so big, he like I think he broke. 
Daniel Craig's arm or leg or something, shooting, doing that train scene in um, Inspector. Like he's just he's a massive guy, and like that's the kind of guy you need to be. Like you know, Jaws. Like it isn't like a you know, like you need a guy of this era. Like Jaws was a giant guy. You, if, you, if you're gonna have a giant guy, get a giant guy. Don't get a guy on the cheap. He was kind of like a on the cheap giant guy. His act. He was a good actor. But like as a visual, you know, spectacle, he wasn't. You know, you could have gotten more. Yeah. So he was just, you know, he was sort of there. Yeah. Uh, what else did I have in my notes here? Um, uh, the guys in the in the opening thing were very, 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 very typically Russian. Nobody can shave well, in Russia. Were, well, they were on the Russian border, so. Yeah. But it was just like everyone's got like loose cigarettes with just tobacco hanging out of them, and no one's shaved in six weeks, and um, collared jackets. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> I love the uh, so like there's the opening sequence, and then then, then you, they go to the song. We'll, we'll come back to the song in a minute, but then like you you go to the whole like introduction of the actual problem, which is the stealth boat and the whole thing, and they they sink the Devonshire, and um. You know, Captain Exposition, who tells you all the information you need to know about the situation in one sentence. I forget what he says. I just wrote Captain Exposition. Like, oh, the GPS the doesn't. Lie. Yeah, like they're on the boat and they're they're talking about, um, like the the, the key that goes from peace to war. I just, oh yeah. <laughs> I, just, I mean, that could be a real key. I don't know, but I thought that was great. Like, we just everything's fine. Oh my god, everything's at war. Like, just, just start war press here. You know, <laughs> yeah, all right. <laughs> Plus the idiot-proof air force. <laughs> um, the drill thing I think was just, like, just ridiculous. Like, if you think about it for half a second, the whole idea falls apart. Like, it's cool. No, they mean... they drop the drill. And the drill travels slow like a torpedo, and then it just it doesn't explode. It makes a giant hole in the boat. That's fine. But then, like the drill goes up, and I'm like, because it had like rockets on the side, like to make it go in the water. That makes sense, but not in the air. Like it, the rockets would just explode at that point. Like it was. It, well, they didn't use it in the air. It was underwater. No, but once they went into the ship, they were like, okay, now we have to travel northward uh, in the ship. I'm like, okay, yeah, well, I, I, you're kind of ahead of the water at that point. Like, like you're kind of going on there, you know, like Pac-Man in, in a video game. I'm like, guys, that just just the big hole yeah. in the boat was sufficient. You didn't have to start going up. Like yeah, going, going, <laughs> going up was ridiculous. Um, and... What did I also have here? I had uh, da, 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 da. oh oh the the British off between the, the Parliament Minister M and Admiral Stuffy Pants. <laughs> well, you, well, you know what the joke is there, right? And you know, well, because uh, him and her were on that other show on the BBC, right? That was the joke. Right, they were they were on a sitcom for years together where they were married. Yeah, I I can't think of the name of it now because I didn't. Uh, I think it was as time goes by or something, right? Something, that yeah. That, that sounds right. Yeah, uh, yeah. And it was a good show, and it was a great because they're was, fucking brilliant actors. Like you're right, like he was stuffy pants in that show too, but they got along. <laughs> Whereas in this one, they don't get along at all. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's funny. That's that's clever. Yeah, but like, but but like, but then you bring in that like you know like the home secretary or whatever his name was. And like the other, like my God, man, do they want tea? Like you know, you just go on like that for like five minutes. Um, I just thought that was really funny. And then everyone drinking in the car with M, like that was like they 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 like the whole plot is off to the races. The ship, yeah, is sunk. Everyone's dead. They go. They get Bond. He's having sex with the Danish girl, and they 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 throw him in the back of that uh, Rolls Royce, and. Uh, and they've all got scotch. They're all just, you know, going a thousand miles an hour through, you know, through central London or from from Oxford to London, and they've all got a glass of scotch. I'm like, why? Why? I mean, it's not Mad Men. Why we have to drink so much early in the early in the day? I don't get it. They're all very stressed. <laughs> I suppose so. What'd you think of this song? Uh, 
It was okay. Cheryl Crow is not a bad singer. She's not a good one. I actually thought she was. It was this was a bad song. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, no, I I didn't like this well, song. Well, then that was okay. I, there were definitely worse songs. Like I think the song is okay. Like, like it's, but I think she's not good singing it. Hmm. Like I don't like a lot of her music, but this there there are, there are a few songs I do and. The ones where I think she's good is when she's sort of more countrified. Like Change Would Do You Good and some of her more famous songs I thought, thought were okay. But this is a ballad. Like an honest to God actual ballad. And it's not a well written ballad, but it's okay. Um But yeah, no, I I, I I I like the graphics. Like the this sort of CGI motif they had going where they were, you know, they were Sort of blending the X-ray vision with the, um, like the, the silhouettes would you know morph into like the, like they were like silhouettes of like computer chips would become people kind of a thing like it looked neat it was this whole idea like technology was was becoming a real thing the internet you know satellites all these things were you know they was the, the beginning of very commonplace things now you know twenty five years ago it was very very different. Um, so it was visually pretty cool, but this, I don't know, like she's just not very good. Mm. I didn't think. Um, what else did I have here? Uh, they gave Jonathan Price everything to do but twirl a mustache. Right. Like yeah. you said. Yeah. Um, and then, the, and then there's Q as the Avis guy with the car. Oh, yeah. Let's talk hey, I about thought the it. Was car. pretty good. I loved this car. I loved this car as a car. I thought that like this. So this was the like the last design language that BMW used before they lost their minds. So I've been a big BMW fan for years. I thought that their early '90s cars were fantastic. You know that. That that design language, you know, transferred to the late '90s, and this was like the last big luxury car they made that looked like sort of a stately, not sporty, but just a big executive luxury sedan. And I thought it was cool because it had a big engine in it. It was understated, but it was sort of broad and 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 it had a you know a good presence. And then. The next thing you know, they went in a very different direction. They've kind of stayed that direction for the last maybe 15 years or so, culminating recently in their new designs for some of their their sedans, where like that classic sort of kidney-shaped grill thing where they have like these two like like you know double vented thing it becomes like a snout. It looks like a pig. I don't know if you've if you've seen these 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 new designs for these cars. But they're hideous, and so this was the last time that they they designed a new sedan that looked really exceptional. And so, like, I I just loved this car so much, and I thought Q was really funny as like the guy giving him the like the, the intro to it as the Avis rental guy. I thought that was a clever idea, you know, probably yeah, placement and a half, it, but it was good. Yeah, but it was now he was only there as mostly as comic relief. You know, which he had been in Goldeneye, but now it's yeah. really like, I'm only here to make a joke about your car and explain it to you. And in this one, he actually does a lot with the car. Yeah. You know, like the car and like that car scene is really important. It's really impressive that the car can be driven from his phone using like a touchpad. <laughs> and like you see the car going up and around on the parking lot without anybody driving it, which is an old school kind of technique that Bond films would use or it was like isn't this cool? Look at this wacky special effect we have going on. You know, you know how, how, how I they like did that. it, right? Uh, yeah, but you, you explained it anyway. <laughs> it's just a guy lying on the floor. Well, yeah, it's, that's all it was. Yeah. It was just a guy lying they did on that the stuff with like, yeah, they did that stuff with like the Muppet movie. <laughs> yeah. And, 
and Knight Rider. It's just like it's one of those like very th- like very clever things. Like, hey, it's the guy lying down. There were two steering wheels. There was the one you could see, and the one that was like below, like below the camera line. And they just had a guy like lying on, on his like, which is just amazing. You think about it, you get like you drive the car, but do it lying down and looking up. <laughs> it's just oh, yeah. remarkable. Practical effects too. I mean, this is '97. Yeah. So, like everything you're seeing, the car is really doing all that stuff. Yeah. Um, I also love, love that the phone has a fingerprint scanner. Like that was like like the most futuristic thing in the world. <laughs> like, your phone has a fingerprint scanner. My phone scans my face. It it can tell me when when, when my eyes are closed. Like it's amazing. Yeah, no, I noticed that stuff. I liked the, the phone. It, it had a fingerprint scanner, but it also had like the two prongs that came out and would just short short circuit things that could like like electronic doors. Yeah. And then he uses that on that guy. He tricks him into using oh and like tases himself by mistake. Doctor Kaufman. Yeah. yeah. That guy's also famous. Is he? He's like a famous character actor, that guy. Yeah. I think that's he... the only reason that scene went on and on. Yeah, that scene goes on <laughs> forever. <laughs> I could shoot you. I could shoot you from Stuttgart and still create the proper effect. Like he's got to be a thing. It's like it's. Just... I, feel, I feel like an idiot. I don't know what to say. <laughs> you know, the whole scene is ridiculous. I was like, why is this scene taking twelve minutes? Yeah, and then like he pulls out a VHS tape. I'm like, it's just oh, it would be on the news in an hour. I'm like, oh my god. Wow, that is rapid fire news right there. Like, <laughs> Jesus, an hour. And, like, that's what I'm talking about with, like, the science fiction-y aspect where it's like, we already recorded this news and it's fake and we're going to show it to people. And I was like, when I'm 12, I'm like, wow. And I'm looking at it now like, oh, my God, Jesus Christ. (laughs) You know. Yeah. Now we just have AI do all that stuff for us. I was going to say, now everything is invented in real time. Yeah. So. All right. So let's talk about... what? Go ahead. Go ahead. No, yeah, you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, Terry Hatcher. What is Terry Hatcher doing in this movie? Terry Hatcher was the big bait and switch. It was the big thing that Terry Hatcher was the Bond girl. She was in all the promos. She was in all the commercials. They put her in the slinky dress. She's only in it for 25 minutes. Barely. And then it's Michelle Yao. Yo. Yo. Michelle Yeoh? Yeah. And she becomes the Bond girl. And look, Michelle Yeoh is very pretty, but Terry Hatcher is very pretty. <laughs> so when she, you know, spoiler for 30 year old movie, when she dies, everybody looked around like, wait, what the hell? And then you find out that the, that the Chinese woman is going to be, is, is the one he's going to hang out with. And I was like, oh, huh. Okay. That's not where I thought this was going. Like, you're right. She's not a great actress. And Ooh. the scenes with him and, and her are not great. Oh my god, they're terrible. But but that was that was the thing was that she was like supposed to be the one that everyone paid attention to. So it was like a big deal that she didn't make it through the film. I mean, she's really she's really not in it very much. No. Yeah. It, no, she's not I don't know. I've never thought much. I, I I like Terry Hatcher in Lois and Clark. I thought she was really good at that in, in in that TV show because you know she had to be kind of like silly and light, and it was like it was a light TV show. It was like it's amazing that that show worked like it did. Like it's it's kind of ridiculous, but like it was a you know a comedy show about Superman that didn't really revolve around Superman. It was about Clark and Lois. That's why it was called that. And, you know, she was both tenacious and sort of ridiculous and silly, and she had to get into, like, a jam every week, and he had to save her kind of a thing, and it was it was fun, but it was dumb. She was dumb on that show. She was dumb on Seinfeld, and she was just very, very pretty. Okay. Um... And I don't know, like there was something about her that was just sort of like empty the whole time. And like that emptiness is what made 
her funny as Lois in Lois and Clark. Like Lois is actually a pretty strong female character, and in order to make her less strong and more funny, you have to kind of empty her out. And that's what they did with, you know, when they cast Terry Hatcher. In it. It's like there wasn't much depth to that character anymore. Otherwise, the whole thing would be really absurd. So here you've got sort of like an empty suit or an empty dress playing this character. And, it, you know, like I didn't mind when she died because it was clear, like, they just, okay, fine. She was right. a vehicle for his, his frustration. And that was it. Yeah. Well, that, but that's just the thing. Like, I, I just remember it was, it, it was supposed to be like the Vivian Lee of this movie, where she, you're you're looking for her and she's not in it. That's true. Yeah, I yeah, yeah. I didn't think about that. This, for those of you who are not aware, that's Vivian Lee was in Psycho, also a good movie. Right. <laughs> right, and the big thing there was that she was the main, she was the main draw. And she gets murdered in the first hour or whatever, and then the rest of the movie goes on. Yeah. And that was like a big deal. So same thing with Terry Hatcher. You know. Yeah. Um so what would you say is the biggest flaw this film has? I think the biggest flaw the film has is that the the investigatory nature of it stops about halfway through, and it's just a, a, once they get um, once they get captured by Carver and are brought to Hong Kong, the rest of the film is just a shootout. Like there's just one action piece after another. Like there's not really a sense of mystery about this. You know, I I was enjoy Bond as the you know Saluth trying to figure out what's going on, and they know what's going on from from, from the beginning. Like they say, like, well, the mysterious signal came from one of Carver's satellites, and Carver got the paper out so fast, and blah blah blah. Like, we know he's behind it somehow. So yeah, fine. But you know, there's still some sense of like, well, how is he doing it? Why is he doing it? What the hell's going on? We're gonna go down to the bottom. He jumps out of the plane with the halo jump and goes into the ocean and finds the ship but when they get captured the whole thing becomes one shoot em out scene after the other there's no more plot there's just like one action set piece and it's just like okay fine like like i kind of stopped watching the film as a review after that point because like yeah i know what happens they go here they shoot them up there they go there they shoot them up there and that's it and there's just not much to it. It feels like a very pedestrian thing following Goldeneye. It feels like any other Bond movie to me. Yeah. So, what do you think? Um, that's a good way of looking at it. I had, you know, the mystery part was pretty much done. Um, I always felt that they completely gutted Pierce Brosnan's character. Yeah. No, you don't. You don't want a whole lot, um, because too much, and you get Daniel Craig bonds, and they're very serious. And before those movies started, none of these bonds were really all that serious. I think Goldeneye was probably the most, and like that was just enough. Like I don't, I don't need any more than that. But in this one, he's a one-line spouting machine. All he does is make quips and jokes, and like. You've got Pierce Brosnan, and he's a good-looking guy, and you should you should definitely you know keep that in there. But at the same time, it's all he does. So, like, there's no inner conflict. There's no inner anything. He's just like, I'm going here now. I'm making a sex joke now. I'm going this way. I'm getting beaten up now. And I was like, he could be anybody. You know, like it, it doesn't matter that he's James Bond anymore. He, and you could have hired, I mean, you should keep Pierce Brosnan. I thought Pierce Brosnan was always very good at this, but it's less fun and interesting to watch him go through the motions. And I think you're right. Like, so when you put that together with the second half of the movie, which is where they're just trying to survive and stop the villain, you know, they're not trying to figure anything out. There's no complicated thing to it. They just have to stop him and expose him. It's very dull. Yeah. You know, because 
you're you're watching him make comments about certain things every so often and not that much is happening because they only have one goal in mind and the only thing that stops them is one giant german man every so often <laughs> you know because you know there's plenty of goons okay but jonathan price isn't fighting anybody so like when stamper is not doing something you're just like oh well, okay and there's more movie going <laughs> it yeah it's dull I, I I've always wondered what it would have been like to like have Brosnan play in the Daniel Craig movies, like take Daniel Craig's you know, like the writers. I mean, really for like Casino Royale and Spectre and um, uh, what's it called? The last one, Skyfall, and like just like what would it have been like to like have him do that? Like bring his sensibility to it. Like there's a lightness to him. There's, there's a frivolity, but you, you've said this a lot. And I, and I think this is really true. The thing that made Sean Connery great was he was equal parts, charming and terrifying. And that's very hard to accomplish. Like you need to be ruthless at the same time that you need to be engaging, you know, cause he's doing two things at the same time, which is what, makes him a superhero is that he is you know taking people men and women both and you know and drawing them in as a spy he's a spy he needs to get people to trust him to give him information and to give him access to things but also he has he has to defend himself from you know larger than life foes and so you 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 have to walk a tightrope there with that you're on you're on a knife's edge the whole time Brosnan does that really, really well. He's both funny and charming and also very ruthless. Craig is ruthless, to be sure, but he's not funny. Like, when he is funny, like, he's he's probably funnier in the last movie he made than he than he was the, in the three movies before combined. and Or four of them, you know, combined. And that's fine. Like, I thought he was good. Like And I enjoyed that, that last movie a lot. But, um... It, it, it almost seems forced or kind of weird. Like he's like, okay, Daniel, try to make a joke here. Like you see like a guy yelling from like behind a bullhorn. Like, okay, funny, everyone. It's, this is a funny scene. Like just let's just do this. Um, and so like not, you know, not giving Brosnan like the chance to have a character is a waste of time, I think. Well, it, to make him be funny he has to interject goofiness into the scenes and you don't want him to be goofy. Like when they're in that Hong Kong building and they're, they're handcuffed together, him and the girl and they, you know, they, they escape, they jump out the window, they grab onto the banner that has this big face on it and they start sliding down the banner. And when they get to the end of the banner, they're hanging up the side of the building and he just looks up and he goes, next time I'll take the elevator. And I'm like, you just diffused all the tension in that scene because yeah. now we're all laughing at him and not with him Yeah, because he's still dangling off a gigantic skyscraper. Like wait until you're in the building to say that, you know, I mean, it, it sounds stupid, but it, it, it diffuses the tension and then I don't really care. It takes me out of the moment. And the whole yeah. movie is like that. He does that for every single thing he says. Like at one point in the very beginning of the movie, when he's taking the fighter jet out, it has nuclear weapons on it. He doesn't want to get those blown up, so he steals the jet, starts to fly it out, and the guy in the back starts to choke him. Yeah. You know, with like the rope. And when he finally hits the ejector seat and the guy goes flying out, he's like, Oh, backseat drivers. And I'm like, Oh my God. Like you just got choked for five minutes. You shouldn't be able to talk. And I'm not saying it has to be realistic. I'm just saying like the way he reacts to things with these goofy one-liners stops me from caring about him because he's not taking it seriously in the slightest. Yeah. You know, and, and Roger Moore movies were like that too. When you can't jump across alligator backs like they're logs, you know, <laughs> remember yeah. that one? Yeah. Yeah. And, th and that's, <laughs> that's, that's going to be the thing as we go through the Brosnan era is this to say like, first movie was great. It it was tonally consistent. It was good. But then they just, you know, they take everything that happened in the Roger Moore movies and they condense them down to four films, which 
immediately and aggressively get progressively worse in terms of that sort of like tonal inconsistency. Like the stakes are high. It's World War Three in this one. In the next one, it's World War Three again with oil involved. Like in the in the last one, it's World War Three with North Korea involved, and he gets tortured for it. Like that was the whole big hook in Die Another Day was that like Bond gets captured and then he's got to like you know and like it you 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 got to find that middle ground between making the guy you know engaging and funny cuz he's got to be likable but also like this is a serious thing that you have set up here you cannot dismiss it and that's what these these stupid lines do is they don't give him a character and they dismiss him as a character which is which is really bad right and i think the other movies sort of this one leans into it the hardest and they kind of veered away from it in the later ones where he wasn't always that goofy. Like he did still take some situations seriously. Whereas in this one, he never does. Yeah. No matter how bad, no matter how bad it gets. And I think that really hurts it a lot because you already have the villain hamming it up, you know? And so like his, his ruthlessness and his craziness don't match up with everything that's happening with Bond. He always just sort of shrugs and winks. And I'm like, yeah, you can't shrug and wink the whole film. Yeah. Some parts of it have you have to take seriously. You know, otherwise you might as well be shooting paintball bullets at everybody and we, you know, we can all smile at and wink at the camera, but but no one else is doing that but him. So it's like ugh. You know, yeah. It, it really hurt it. I agree. So yeah, it's you know, and, it's what did you what did you like the most? I liked the car chase sequence. I think the most. I think that it was an inventive way of doing an old thing. Mm-hmm. You know, like this. You know, it did have like that ridiculously reverse engineered gag where like the BMW logo pops up and cuts through that one tension wire. Like, yeah, well, what are the odds those were there? Yeah, why would you ever need that? <laughs> <laughs> So it's very lean with his gadgets. Use every gadget on an adventure. You know, they gotta have my jam trousers. Um, <laughs> oh, he's got his jam trousers. Let's swim away, shall we? <laughs> <laughs> um. So the car chase was good. Um. The bike chase too was good. Like, the, like the set pieces were good in and of themselves. Like on their own, they are great. Like having. Two people who are handcuffed together ride a motorcycle where one person works the throttle and the other one works the clutch. That's 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 clever. That's really not that bad. Yeah. I actually really like that scene. Yeah. I mean it's you know, it's all practical. It's not goofy. It isn't like, you know, like the beginning of um it's that Skyfall when he's on like like on the bike on the on the Grand Bazaar. It's very clearly him on a CGI like a blue screen, like riding a bike like Oh, you, you you all can't see me, but I'm like doing, <laughs> I'm doing it now. I'm doing the thing. <laughs> um, you know, so like they 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 shot that pretty well, and uh, yeah, like you know, what's always weirded me out about that scene, and it's small. There, where are they? They're in Hong Kong, right? Yeah, and they're going through all these like. They're in like the slums. They're not in a really nice area, and they're going through no. all these like bamboo doors and, and people's houses and stuff. You, they go through people's clothing lines. At one point, they crash through a, a woman's house, and they like you know they land somewhere and they drive off. And she's like in the bath, and she looks at the camera and smiles or something, like like she was doing something she shouldn't have. And I was like, why is that shot in this? It's just like a quick <laughs> shot of, of I'm like, why is this reaction shot here? It was. The smallest of things, but like it always stood out to me for some reason. Now I have to find that scene. I don't recall that. Yeah, now you go. Like, wait, wait, where was that? Go back and watch it. You'll never unsee it. (laughs) Um, but yeah, it's a it's a good scene. I I enjoy that because you know you're taking something that uh, has been done a million times to death, and they had a nice twist to it. Don't they take down the helicopter by like throwing a wire into it too? Yeah. Well, what they do is, is that they how get he, like knocks it down. 
so like there's a, there's that the helicopter has like a has a blade on the back uh, of it and that that's there for stability as far as I can tell because every time like in a movie you see them like fuck up with that little tiny one in the back the whole thing goes tits up and like you're like I don't know what the hell's going on here but um yeah like they they like I mean it's dumb because like the the helicopter like points its blades downward as if to use it to chop them in half and i'm like okay but that seems like a really stupid thing for a helicopter to do because it means it's just gonna crash any second now uh, I'm, I'm, I'm actually watching this scene i'm going where is this lady in the bathtub like <laughs> like <laughs> what the hell's going on you'll but, see um just yeah it's there yeah i'm, yeah, I'm sure it's there but um so yeah, so what were the things about it that you liked about it a lot? You think? Uh, yeah, I mean, I like that. I I really like Jonathan Bryce. I thought I thought he did a good job. Yeah, if you're gonna have a villain like that, just just do it. Just go yes. for it. Yeah, go yeah, go nuts. I I wonder if this film was the beginning of like let's appease China, so they let us show their our movies there because like she has a Michelle Yeoh has a big role in this film. Yes. You know, and, and I remember watching it for the first time being like, she's sticking around, huh? <laughs> and next thing you know, they're like in love at the end of the movie. I was like, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So like, that's a thing I learned relatively recently. Um, and if you made it this far to the podcast, good for you. Cause then we're going to talk about geopolitics, but, um, Hey, people love that stuff. They do. But like what one of the things I that I found fascinating was how how China decides you know how to influence how to sort of flex their muscle culturally and financially is that you know they've got about a half a billion people who can go to the movies in China um the other half billion they're not so concerned about but um they they get to decide like what movies get shown there and they're very selective like only certain movies will do that and so because Hollywood studios know well well, we're only going to get like two films to show in China this year we better make them very pro-China and this is things that like if you're a very casual observer you might notice these things but you might not so like my one of my favorite films is The Martian I like it because it's very like low stakes because like everything gets solved at the end and everything works out. It's one of those movies that like we're all working towards a very foreordained like for for foreordained conclusion that we're just gonna get there. It'll be fun. Just stick you know stick stick with this. But the savior in that movie is the Chinese government because they have an extra rocket to send the guy food or whatever else it is. Like there's there's some very random and integral part that. China plays in the completion of that plot. And this is 20 years before this movie, or rather uh, after this movie. So I think you're right. Like, this is probably the beginning of, like, you know, we want to sell things to people in China who are already making all the things that we that we sell. And so we'll just kind of make it as pro-China as possible. It's not a very anti-Chinese film at all. It's, you know, quite pro-China. Yeah. And I know it takes place in Hong Kong, and this was before they handed Hong Kong back to China. Mm-hmm. But even still, I mean, she says, I work for China, you know, like the the big Chinese government. Yeah, and, and there's work, a, and, and there's a scene where, where like they, you know, they, they think there's the evil Chinese general who doesn't speak at all. He, there's no interaction. He just he's, walks across the screen once. And there's a scene where, where where they say specifically like we are not going to fire on the ship because you know like we're 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 going to go kill the bad general and it's all you guys you you go get him or whatever and like yeah like there's definitely like a you know cooler heads prevail kind of sense about the end of this film as far as the like the governments are concerned kind of thing mm-hmm. and yeah uh, like 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 they're also just in it to, to they know it's not clearly that the British who are attacking them. And, you know, I'm like, uh, uh, sure. Okay. That's what I know from China. <laughs> yeah. That makes sense. That tracks. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So. <laughs> All right. So, yeah. Anything else? No, I think that just about covers everything. If you guys have any thoughts about Tomorrow Never Dies or 
Anything else involving James Bond or Pierce Brosnan, make sure that you let us know on Twitter and or Instagram and or Facebook at uh, Three Drinks In Podcast on Facebook, at Three Drinks In Pod on Twitter and, Twitter and Instagram. Uh, don't forget to email us at three drinks in podcast at gmail.com. Buy our t shirts and other merchandise over at tpublic.com. Is there anything else? Yeah, I think that's it. That's it. All right. As always, please drink res- responsibly, and we'll talk to you all next time. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.